Sonic the Hedgehog is an inconsistent franchise, but fans find ways to enjoy what little consistency there is. The charm of its characters, the gameplay elements strewn about the series that remained intact, its gorgeous visuals and art direction, or the passion and creativity from the community. Even if a new installment disappoints, there are at least things to look forward to each and every time. To me, the most consistent element of this franchise is its music. For the past 30 years, Sonic music has become a mainstay in video game culture and discussion about music in the medium. Virtually everyone has had at least one song from this franchise firmly etched into their mind at some point, and for good reason. Today, we'll be dissecting the compositions made for the series, how the various composers were able to capture the essence of each game or inject uniqueness into it, and what makes this series' music so legendary. Obviously, this is going to be a massive undertaking. I can't talk about everything this series has to offer musically. I've instead selected what I felt were most relevant to the discussion and evolution of this series, and I hope I can paint a bigger picture and show you the journey Sonic Music has undertaken after three decades. With that said, I'm Liam Triforce, and in this video, we'll be understanding the music of Sonic the Hedgehog. In 1990, Sega wanted a mascot for the company, something that would rival or even outdo whatever Nintendo was offering. This ambition led to the creation of Sonic the Hedgehog, a fast-paced action platformer that took advantage of the Genesis' processor. Sega was able to market the game by exploiting the one thing that the Super Nintendo lacked in, its CPU speed, and the game became a commercial success, cementing Sonic the Hedgehog as the console's killer app. To complement the game they were building at the time, the newly formed Sonic Team commissioned Masato Nakamura of the J-pop band Dreams Come True to compose the music. Uh, I didn't treat uh, Sonic as a, a game, but a film. You know, because a graphic is great and very, it has a very strong story. So I thought, oh, this is a movie. It's important to note that despite being a talented musician, Nakamura wasn't used to creating music from visuals. Most traditional musicians aren't. Usually the music comes first, and the atmosphere it gives off will drive the creation of an album cover or a music video. That's what made this shift in workflow so difficult for him. That's why it's so rare for musicians outside of the video game or film industry to compose for them. As the series progressed, both of these gaps would be bridged in unbelievable ways. At the time, a move like this was unheard of, but it paved the way for a bright future. Nakamura was only able to use screenshots and concept art to gather inspiration, as the game was early in development. He'd also receive advice from the developers on what the music should represent, but that was all he had. So, uh, Sonic staff explained to me, you know, it's gonna be like this, it's gonna be like this. And I started, you know, uh, writing songs, but uh, I will never know, because that was a totally, totally new for me. So the fact that he was able to enrich each area of the game in such detail, and create some of the most memorable music in video game history, is pretty cool, a testament to his work. Before the Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo rolled around, it was very difficult for video game composers to fully convey what they envisioned for a scene's atmosphere. Some games really broke new ground for the medium, like Metroid's abrasiveness, Zelda's intrigue, or Ninja Gaiden's cinematic flair. But hardware restrictions kept most composers from understanding how to translate their ideas onto the NES. The NES had five audio channels, each with their own respective uses. Two for pulse waves, one for the triangle wave, one for noise, and one for samples. To learn more, I'd recommend watching this quick breakdown. 
Technically speaking, you could create an atmosphere for levels by manipulating pitches or frequencies, but that's as far as you'd get. The Sega Genesis changed everything. Its sound capabilities were provided by the Yamaha YM2612 for synthesis, and the Texas Instruments SN76489 for 50% square waves and noise, previously used by the Sega Master System. The Yamaha chip synthesizer defined the sound of the console, and it was capable of translating most compositions far better than the NES ever could. More audio channels and an era-defining sound. To demonstrate the chip's capabilities, let's take a look at how Michael Jackson's Moonwalker translated his music. In Smooth Criminal, the main melody carries over to the Genesis well thanks to the synthesizer sounding very close to the sound used in MJ's music. It was a common sound in the 80s, so the Genesis being able to replicate that sound was a major plus for composers. One of the YM2612's FM channels can be used for playing back 8-bit samples, so that's where you'll hear the drums or even vocal bits come in. The sample playback was of a much higher quality than the NES, so it was a combination of these two elements that managed to make his music work on the system. This is a bit of a bare-bones explanation of the system's audio, as I'm no audio engineer or anything. But the sound of the Sega Genesis is something that beautifully translated already existing music into something great on its own merits. However, Smooth Criminal is something that benefits from being synthesized, and Nakamura went into Sonic wanting to compose an original, cinematic score. He's composing for this limited hardware from scratch in order to breathe life into a vibrant and varied world. How could he do it? Well, I think Green Hill Zone makes it apparent just how capable this dynamic duo would prove to be. You have this build-up into a simple but elegant melody. Three chords played back with the oscillator set to a soft, inviting tone, and the song evolves as you continue playing. The song progresses unpredictably for such a simple composition, and that's what makes it work so well. It's perfect accompaniment for one of the best first levels in video game history. As the game progresses, the synth's capabilities are fleshed out even further in the harsh yet catchy sustains of Marble Zone. jingles and chimes of Springyard Zone. Or the sharp eighth notes in Labyrinth Zone. Along with the synth, the percussion also matches each level's setting, in order to accurately reflect the art direction or general game feel. Marble Zone has some chunky, progressive drum samples to symbolize the pace and atmosphere of the level, while Springyard Zone has a much bouncier beat to it as you watch Sonic ricochet off of bumpers and springs. After trudging through Labyrinth Zone and struggling not to drown, Starlight Zone is super cathartic. Its main melody is so whimsical, and yet its tempo and breakdown match the speed of the level.
After relishing in that, however, you're met with the descending melody of the penultimate level Scrap Brain Zone, putting the pressure on you with tense drums and uncertainty. However, a portion of the song uses an uplifting melody to counteract the stress and push you towards your goal. It's here where Nakamura's philosophy of composing for film really shines through, and it's especially evident in the final boss. It sounds dire and intense to symbolize the high stakes of taking on Dr. Robotnik with zero rings. Everything is on the line. When you finally take him down, you watch the credits go by and you reflect on the various ups and downs of your adventure. A big deal for a kid in the 90s, and a huge leap for orchestral or cinematic compositions on the Genesis. Sega would again commission Nakamura for Sonic the Hedgehog 2, and it's here where I felt he really hit his stride and got the hang of composing for the Genesis. Rather than adhering strictly to the philosophy of composing for film with Sonic 2, it felt like he was simply writing another album for his band. And because of that, every single track works in the context of the game on an atmospheric, melodic, and technical level. Emerald Hill Zone is such a brilliant first level theme. You have that high energy synth to kick things off, as well as an equally high energy bass line, and some easily identifiable pop rock percussion to back it all up. Nakamura kind of embraced the fact that he's a pop musician, and breathed that talent into a lot of Sonic 2. The second level, Chemical Plant Zone, goes further with catchy pop rock melodies, a groovy bass line, and a phenomenal breakdown. These two songs are easily some of the most important in the history of the series, as they established a rock vibe that Sonic would carry and evolve for years. Hearing it on the Genesis is a one-of-a-kind experience though, especially as the instrumentals reflect the setting whilst maintaining the genre, like an aquatic ruin, oil ocean, sky chase, and especially Mystic Cave. The melody and bassline sync up emphatically here. I think the reason the feel is maintained despite the alterations to instrumentals, melodies, and harmonics is because of the persistent bass lines and drums. They are both instrumental to any song, pun intended. They can completely change the feel of a track. Remove percussion and bass from Oil Ocean or Mystic Cave, and it becomes a simple track that reflects the vibe of the level. I suppose it makes sense that a pop artist would make this the case, but that's why I think Sonic 2's music works on so many levels. Perhaps the poppiest track is the song from Metropolis Zone. That groovy melody, the record scratch sample blending with the catchy drums, and the tasty breakdown. It's the pinnacle of what Nakamura wanted to create.
After taking down Dr. Robotnik, you're greeted by a Genesis cover of the Dreams Come True song, Sweet Sweet Sweet, and a much cleaner end credits melody that is completely tied together by the drums. The tempo is kept throughout and it sounds fantastic. A great way to cap off a phenomenal sequel. Both of these soundtracks define the sound of Sonic the Hedgehog. A fleet-footed pop-rock soundtrack with atmospherically appropriate instrumentals accompanying fluent, speedy gameplay. However, it would be up to future composers to carry its identity. With the completion of Sonic 2, Masato Nakamura decided that if he were to stick around, he would need to be paid more, as he was constantly dividing his attention between Dreams Come True and the Sonic series. Because of this, Sega made the decision not to commission him again. Of course, he was still willing to return in the future, but the split was amicable based on time and money. At the time, a portion of Sonic Team merged into Sega Technical Institute in order to work on Sonic together. So they were situated in the United States developing these games. The lack of a composer and the convenience of sitting in the heart of California set the stage for a monumental event, and this is where we come full circle. Michael Jackson, of all people, visited the studio. He had worked with Sega before on Moonwalker, and he was a fan of Sonic. After hearing about the opening, MJ offered to work on some music for the game along with his team, and Sega immediately accepted, as would anyone when he was at the height of his fame. Sonic the Hedgehog 3 would eventually gather a gargantuan sound team for a Sega Genesis game. His collaborators Brad Buxer, Bobby Brooks, Daryl Ross, Doug Grigsby, Jeff Grace, and Sirocco Jones were also involved in production. Brad Buxer collaborated with MJ on a few of his songs, and would continue to do so throughout the 90s. Sirocco Jones was also confirmed to have collaborated with him for a couple of tracks on Sonic 3. In addition, SDI's overall sound director, Howard Drossen, and a few composers within Sega, which we'll talk about, were enlisted. They all climbed on board at various points, but what brings this into shaky territory is what happened in 1993. Michael Jackson was facing some pretty scathing allegations at the time. Allegations that continue to this very day, might I add. And regardless of whether or not he was happy with what he had composed, Sega were forced to remove or rework his compositions in order to distance themselves from the controversy. This meant the entire sound team had to collaborate on the music in order to make it sound consistent and without a trace of Michael's influence. But this also meant they were able to create one of the most dynamic and beautiful video game soundtracks of all time. For starters, both Acts 1 and 2 have their own themes, and this allows the game to symbolize progress or a shift in ideas, tone, or challenge. For example, Angel Island begins with a fast, upbeat tune, but as the island becomes engulfed in flames, the main melody isn't so happy-go-lucky anymore, and the drums are more noticeable and intense. I'm not sure what Black Magic was performed with Sonic 3, but the drum samples are much clearer this time around, and the percussion itself varies far more than Sonic 2 ever did. That alone feels weird to say, but it's totally true. Sonic 2 really only used one snare sample. Hydro City's descending melody and funky instrumentals suit the plunge into the water, but the tempo and drums kick it up a notch for Act 2, as does the sense of speed as you blaze through the level's hazards. Both acts make use of unpredictable yet delectable drum beats, and that carries over to Marble Garden Zone. Act 2 goes for a grungier synth on the main melody, highlighting the new dangers present in the level thanks to Robotnik and his terraforming badniks. And Launch Base Zone is just a brilliant funk piece, with Act 2 isolating its instrumentals to build tension, and accentuating said tension by repeating the Run DMC sample at a faster rate. Go, 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 go
I always love Carnival Night Zone's drum samples too. It really sounds like beatboxing to me. Now I believe the influence of Michael Jackson's musical style is apparent, and although it's unclear if these songs were perhaps composed by him, and some have insisted that his work was completely removed from the game, a few other collaborators have said that Michael Jackson's music remained in some form, and we do have evidence of this. And forgive me for cutting some of these short, but they will get claimed if I don't. First, Knuckles' original theme in Sonic 3 very clearly samples the beat for Blood on the Dance Floor, which was created in 1991 but remained unreleased at the time. Carnival Night Zone uses the same six-note progression as Jam, as well as a heavily bit-crushed sample of Heavy D. And the credits theme for Sonic 3 was eventually used as a bass for the song Stranger in Moscow, albeit with a slower tempo and calmer percussion. Brad Buxer, one of MJ's key collaborators, worked with him on that song, and it was the second of the three demos or complete songs that weren't released yet. The first being Blood on the Dance Floor, the second being Stranger in Moscow, and the third being Hard Times, a single by the Jetsons that wouldn't be released until 2009. The song would eventually be retold into the theme for Ice Cap Zone, which incidentally became my favorite song in the game. Hard Times' backup synth already shrouds the song in a distinct atmosphere, so it's clear to me how Brad was able to translate this composition into something that suits an icy mountain. The bassline was kept in order to maintain the song's fast pace, and he added a high-pitched synth to symbolize the setting of the level. The chorus just fell into place. It already had everything it needed to represent the level, all it needed was an uplifting synth melody to translate the vocals, and it was complete. presents the instruments in chunks, and I always felt that it emphasized you approaching the peak of the mountain, escaping the high-speed thrills and finding the exit. It's a brilliant song on its own, but the retooling made Ice Cap what it is and what the song will forever be known for representing. The amount of work MJ's team ended up doing and the samples used throughout resulted in what I can only imagine is some heavy legal duty for Sega. With the controversy surrounding Michael and the potential royalties involved, it's no wonder they would part ways. As we know, Sonic 3 ended up being split into two halves, and its latter half, Sonic and Knuckles, would be released later in 1994. At this point, Sega had removed MJ's team from the project, and Howard Drossen, STI's sound director, was asked to compose the music for the game alongside a few musicians within Sega. When locked on to Sonic 3 in order to complete the package, a few small tracks and jingles had been replaced, such as the credits theme and Knuckles' theme, for obvious reasons. Most of the soundtrack attempts to emulate the spirit of MJ's work, but STI zeroed in on atmosphere more than anything. Drossen has composed for a number of Sega Genesis games, most notably Sonic Spinball, so he knows his way around the Thing's sound chip. As a result, the synths channel atmosphere far more than any of MJ's compositions, and it helps that this game contains more scripted sequences and narrative progression. The lead melody in Mushroom Hill sounds very campy as it emulates some brass instrumentation, while also staying in line with Sonic's techno-pop vibe through the bass and percussion. 
Act 2 kicks the tempo and drums up a notch to drive urgency and speed. Flying Battery's theme perfectly captures the velocious nature of exploring a high-tech battleship above the clouds. Obviously, not all of what MJ's team composed has been lost in translation. They still experiment from time to time. Lava Reef taps into some reggae energy, and the underlying bass symbolized the lava below your feet at every turn. Its second act starts out with Hidden Palace Zone, but segues into Lava Reef Zone as it progresses, staying in line with the shift in visuals. Then, once you climb on out of there, you're met with the Sky Sanctuary Zone. I think the music here speaks for itself. It's perhaps the most thematically sound piece of music in the game, and it's enveloping. Of course, you'll come down from that emotional high eventually, as the final level in the game features some intense percussion and a grungy main melody, giving the Death Egg Zone an appropriate, oppressive, industrial feel. Following up on this is the Doomsday Zones theme. It all comes down to this. I adore the build-up in this track. It pushed me to my limits so that I could have enough rings to finally catch up to Robotnik and tear him down. And that, my friends, caps off Sonic 3 and Knuckles, a wonderfully diverse soundtrack full of unpredictable and absolutely phenomenal compositions. Despite the legality, controversy, and implied financial struggles these soundtracks brought to light, they are series-defining. Masato Nakamura laid the foundation for what Sonic music was supposed to sound like, and the composers built a castle on that foundation. However, that castle has rooms you wouldn't expect to be in a castle just as you wouldn't expect a Sonic soundtrack to tap into all the genres that Sonic 3 and Knuckles does. If there was one thing to be sure of, it was that Sonic the Hedgehog would always have good music. While the Genesis Sonic the Hedgehog soundtracks could be characterized by a number of terms, rock, funk, or electropop, which is perhaps the most apt description, there is another soundtrack that I believe defined this era for the series. In between Sonic 2 and 3, Sega needed a flagship game for their disc-based expansion to the Genesis, the Sega CD. Thus, Sonic CD was born. It was developed by the chunk of Sonic Team still situated in Japan, and the soundtrack was composed by Naofumi Hataya and Masafumi Ogata. The two of them were inspired by several artists and bands, 
such as Frankie Knuckles, CNC Music Factory, and the KLF, as well as genres like house or techno. But the soundtrack's instrumentals are more in line with a genre known as New Jack Swing, which blends funk with hip-hop and R&B. This genre was pioneered in the 1986 album Control by Janet Jackson. I swear I'm not trying to make parallels to the Jacksons, they just keep happening, I'm sorry. Anyway, just by listening to the title track off this album, and especially the classic song Nasty, you can probably already hear some of Sonic CD's music. Sonic CD takes on more than just New Jack Swing. It isn't oblivious to Nakamoto's work, and that's what makes it such a definitive soundtrack. Palm Tree Panic immediately conveys the effect a CD-quality soundtrack can have on a game, with an energized, celebratory overture being used as a backdrop to your high-speed romp through the level. If you've played the game before, you'll know that Sonic CD has you traveling through time in order to prevent Robotnik from creating a grim future. Each level has its own good and bad future themes, as well as a theme for visiting the past. The past themes are actually sequenced PCM audio tracks, and they seem to have a lower sample rate than their mixed-mode CD counterparts. This contributes to the retro feel they have, and seeing as the looming threat of Robotnik is out of the picture in that time period, they employ curiosity rather than urgency, while still staying in line with the themes they're based on. If you manage to take down the badnik generators in the past, you'll eventually be greeted to a rewarding, upbeat good future theme that cheers you on. However, if you fail to create a good future, you'll be punished with grim visuals and a dire piece of music. This injects a plethora of variety into the soundtrack. You could have subtle variations, or the stark differences between the various takes on Metallic Madness. And that's what makes it so amazing. The bouncy, dynamic nature of Collision Chaos's main theme, with its techno or house-based instrumentation, is subverted with its low, grungy Bad Future theme, and its calming, synth-based Good Future theme. Songs like this are some of my favorites in not just Sonic CD, but the entire Sonic franchise. They balance the tempo and composition techniques Sonic had established for itself with a rewarding, soothing atmosphere letting you know that you've accomplished something great. Tidal Tempest starts out with a descending melody featuring instruments reminiscent of an underwater adventure, but picks up its percussion as you progress through the level. This track in particular is heavily influenced by hip-hop, but the unique atmospheric spin they put on it is wonderful. They strip away its instruments for the past theme, sounding like a foreign romp through a decrepit ocean temple, but they really zero in on some chill hip-hop vibes for the Good Future theme. On the opposite end of the spectrum, the bad future for Tidal Tempest symbolizes Robotnik's takeover, and pushes industrial instrumentation. It's an entirely different song. Of 
Sports Quadrant feels like a clean fusion of genres. New Jack Swing, House, Funk, you name it. It goes from being symbolic of the level's frantic stop-and-go nature, to crashing into this incredible horn melody over top of the powerful drums. To channel that energy, I tried my damnedest to create a good future for this place. And sure enough, the song I'm rewarded with focuses on that inspiring melody. As much as I love Quartz Quadrant, perhaps the most famous level from this game is Stardust Speedway, with music that leans heavily on New Jack Swing. It also samples a ton of hip-hop, which further adds personality to the music. It's also here where the game's good and bad future dynamic can really affect the atmosphere of a scene. Enter Metal Sonic, a machine Dr. Robotnik created to rival the Blue Blur. Act 3 of Stardust Speedway has you racing Metal Sonic to the end in one of the most memorable set pieces in Sonic history. Your race will either be set to a triumphant take on the level's main melody, or one of the best songs in the Sonic the Hedgehog franchise. The Bad Future mix of Stardust Speedway ramps up its percussion and utilizes its samples to create something perfect for a high-speed race through a futuristic superhighway. It's kind of the reason I sometimes don't get the good ending in Sonic CD. If it weren't already apparent, there is a lot of passion and finesse in this soundtrack. It's absolutely brilliant, and I believe it remains one of the greatest soundtracks a video game has ever had. It creates music evocative of the distinctive visuals, it rewards and punishes you depending on the lengths that you go to in-game, and it creates a seamless blend of musical styles, pushing the boundaries of what is to be expected from each genre. Its samples are elegantly implemented, and no two tracks sound identical or blend together. It was a massive step for the Sonic series, and it demonstrated what its music was really capable of. Sonic 3 would attempt to follow in its footsteps, and it made great use of the Sega Genesis in doing so, but the truth is, Sonic needed CD-quality compositions from here. It was a logical step, and it would lead them into the future headstrong. With that said, Sonic CD's unique soundscape would remain almost entirely unrevisited. That is, until fans came along and did so on their own. Sonic Mania recreated a ton of Sonic's greatest hits from this era, with instrumentation not beholden to the originals, nor constrained by Genesis hardware. It revitalized the New Jack Swing take on Sonic's music years later, but it still happened, and I couldn't be prouder. A couple of things to note before we move on. Sonic CD pioneered the use of vocal tracks to open and close the series' games. Japan and Europe received two songs. You Can Do Anything, and Cosmic Eternity. Lyrically, both are cheesy as hell, and that would become the standard for Sonic lyrics moving forward. But its instrumentation is in line with the games, and it works. With that said, these songs would be replaced in the United States, as would the entire soundtrack. This soundtrack was primarily composed by Spencer Nielsen, known for his work on Echo the Dolphin. Many of the game's musical cues have been replaced by vastly inferior ones, although this soundtrack has its merits. This is not a bad soundtrack by any means, folks. Rather than emulating New Jack's swing, it instead goes for an atmospheric rock vibe. 
Not like Sonic 2, however, because this soundtrack still takes great advantage of the Sega CD. Palm Tree Panic's synths, percussion, and guitars all wonderfully suit the level, and a part of me greatly prefers something less eccentric and energized in contrast to the Japanese version. I also adore the utilization of that guitar riff in Collision Chaos. It already sounds foreboding as all hell, but I love it when it takes a nosedive into grunge territory in the Bad Future mix, and they take that grunginess and repurpose it into something uplifting for the Good Future mix. Love the guitars in Stardust Speedway as well, even if I miss the songs from the Japanese version. Wacky Workbench is groovy as hell, and I prefer it here. The jazzy, scat vocals here carry it over to title Tempest, which sounds great too. Anyway, with all that said, many decisions in this soundtrack don't make any sense. Why does the good future mix of Palm Tree Panic sound like you're about to embark on an African safari? Why does the bad future mix sound so boring and downplayed, while also sounding like an African safari at the same time? Why is Quartz Quadrant stripped of its identity with a rock and roll track? Why is the Zone Clear theme so extra? And why the hell is the Game Over theme so nightmarish? Supposedly, a lot of these issues came about because the entire soundtrack had to be created in two months. I can't imagine the stress that must put on a composer, so I sympathize with the American sound team. With that said, those eight weeks still brought us a hallmark track for the series. Sonic Boom. I love this song, and the world seems to love it too. It's simple, focused, and has a catchy hook. For a song created under a strict time frame meant to headline a flagship video game, pretty good, wouldn't you say? That closes out our discussion of the classic era of Sonic music. It's been quite a journey through various genres and composers, and its dynamic range ended up defining a generation of video game music. With that said, video games were evolving at a rapid pace, and Sonic needed to keep up. In gameplay, presentation, and in turn, music. Ah, the Green Eyes era. That's something everyone can get down with. With the Sega Saturn in development and on track to release in 1995, and the concept of a 3D platformer beginning to take shape in games like Mario 64 and Crash Bandicoot, Sega knew they needed to prepare for a major shift in the gaming landscape. 
At this point, the rest of the Sonic Team staff that were still located in America had moved back to Japan to work on Nights into Dreams, leaving Sega Technical Institute alone and in charge of Sonic's next big adventure. After prototyping several concepts, the team came up with an anti-gravity platformer in which levels appeared to revolve around Sonic. The game was dubbed Sonic Extreme, but it never came to be. Its tumultuous development history has since been well documented, with internal politics, negative reactions from the Japanese staff, and severe illness plaguing the project until its cancellation. Honestly, it was too early for Sonic to take this leap. Even Howard Drossen's score, despite sounding like a CD-quality interpretation of the sound that defined Sonic 3 and Knuckles, wasn't enough to save the game from certain doom. The game didn't take enough strides to evolve upon Sonic's gameplay or overall presentation, and instead it divided many people internally until it was inevitably scrapped. Meanwhile, Sonic Team had just completed Nights into Dreams and were experimenting with Sonic in a 3D space. These tests were transformed into the Sonic World portion of Sonic Jam, a compilation disc for the Sega Saturn. They were included in order to see how people were to react to controlling Sonic in 3D. Obviously, there isn't much that needs to be said. No momentum, barely any platforming, and a surprising lack of speed. However, they were crucial in guiding the next project forward. Sonic Adventure. This game propelled Sonic into the new generation at full speed, and with it came a complete presentational overhaul. Inspired by graffiti artwork, character designer Yuji Uekawa sought to make Sonic and friends appear cooler and more modern. Sonic in particular grew taller, his spikes grew longer, and his eye color changed. Uekawa drew the character in more dynamic poses than previously seen in the series, resulting in an art style that exudes personality. They hired voice actors, casting the ever-so-talented Junichi Kanemaru as the Blue Blur himself, a role he has maintained for over 20 years. Chikao Otsuka, now known for his villainous performances such as Gold Roger in One Piece and Master Xehanort in Kingdom Hearts, gave a phenomenally over-the-top performance as Dr. Robotnik and kept that role until his passing in 2015. The game's style and direction were settled. All that was left was composing a soundtrack to tie it all together. Up until this point, Sonic didn't have a sound director. Whenever the games were being developed in America, they would have Howard Drossen compose the music. But other than that, Sega would commission outside composers. During the Sonic series' struggle to bust into 3D, the slippery, isometric platformer Sonic 3D Blast hit store shelves. For the soundtrack, Sega brought on Jun Sanoe, who had previously worked on a few compositions for Sonic 3 and Knuckles. Most notably, he composed the Act Clear theme that would be remixed to Hell and Back throughout the series. His work on 3D Blast was in line with what Masato Nakamura created, accounting for overlapping synth melodies, drums, bass lines, and atmosphere wonderfully. Actually, his compositions were so dynamic that he was very much limited by the hardware. Rather than having him create CD-quality renditions for the Saturn and PC versions of the game, Sonic Team brought him on as the sound director for Sonic Adventure, a position he would then hold at Sonic Team until 2006. The Dreamcast had a significant advantage over the Genesis in terms of sound, no longer were Sonic composers restricted to electro-pop. Instead, they could compose whatever the heck they wanted. Jun Sanoe grew up listening to rock records, and he got his first electric guitar at the age of 15, aspiring to play music full-time. Hard, funky rock and roll seemed like a natural evolution for Sonic music to take, considering its new style. And that enabled him to write the kind of music he'd always dreamed of writing. And in nearly every waking moment of this game, Jun Sanoe found a way to work a guitar in. Whether you're at the beach, above the clouds, in a sewer, at an amusement park, 
or inside a volcano, you'll hear them. However, they aren't generic guitars. They adhere to various genres and thematics, and always have something original to offer. For example, Emerald Coast guitars are tuned to suit a beach environment, right after one of my favorite energetic opening riffs in the series. Speed Highway's guitars are played to emphasize constant movement and speed through winding pathways, corkscrews, and tunnels. And Skydeck's tasty instrumentation highlights the insanity of the level's structure. Final Egg has two distinct musical cues that always stuck out to me. As you enter the level, its lead guitar is paired with discordant techno to symbolize the foreign technological advancements Eggman has kept tucked away. Then, as the level ramps up in challenge with its second act, you have the descending bass melody with some kick-ass drums, and one of the hottest guitar riffs in the game. Descending melodies are a favorite of Jun Sanoe. He tends to use them to symbolize growing tension. Multiple musical cues in each level are a big reason the soundtrack works so well. Taking a page out of Sonic 3 and Knuckles, each section of a level has its own music to accompany it. Sonic Adventure's stages are full of extravagant set pieces, like Windy Valley's Tornado. You start with a nice and chill melody, nothing too out of the ordinary, but then you're sucked into the tornado and the music completely changes gears. The percussion is anxious, and the drums are heavy on the bass. But once you come out of it, you're welcome to a happy electric guitar overture above the clouds. The song is a reorchestration of Green Grove Zone from Sonic 3D Blast. It seems like Jun Sanoe wanted to give his music a second life in a game people were more willing to play, with free reign in terms of sound quality. Speaking of which, Twinkle Park's opening segment has you racing through space as a 90s synth orchestra accompanies you, which is a remix of Panic Puppet Zone from 3D Blast. As soon as you clear this segment, you're ejected into a roller coaster as the music sets the stage for a high-speed amusement park adventure. Another great example is the musical breadth of Casinopolis. This level can be finished at your own pace in any way you like. You've got the smooth jazz in the lobby, the different tracks for the two pinball tables, one being music from Nights into Dreams as a bit of a tribute to the best Sonic Team game not enough people played, and one for exploring the sewers underneath. But perhaps my favorite set of musical cues comes from Sonic Adventure's take on Ice Cap Zone. There's no hard times by the Jetsons. Instead, we begin with an incredibly atmospheric, laid-back piece. 
then we shift into unsettling dissonant ambience as you scale the coldest, emptiest cave. Once you finally make it out of there, you're greeted to a snowboarding sequence against a colossal snowball. It wouldn't be Ice Cap Zone without a snowboarding segment. Although this was years before stems were possible in video game music, Jun Sanoe still managed to compose the music here in sync with what happens in-game. The first two drops occur simultaneously with the music, and the pacing of the song continues to match the action. If nothing else, Jun Sanoe can definitely play the guitar. And even if this were a dumping ground for him to show off, I would be happy. But it's not. It's more than that. It's an intelligent rock soundtrack that breaks away from hard electric guitars into orchestral pieces, jazz, funk, and other genres where appropriate. It's diverse, and pays equal respects to Masato Nakamura's philosophy of composing for film, whilst evolving the series' sound. A lot of this stuff, like multiple music cues, as well as the overall sound quality, just wouldn't be possible with the Sega Saturn's limited memory. So the decision to develop for the Dreamcast ended up paying off in more ways than one. But there's one key component to the soundtrack that I failed to mention. It ties everything together, and it has since become commonplace in Sonic the Hedgehog. Much like Sonic CD, Sonic Adventure features a theme song with vocals. In early recordings, the vocals were provided by Japanese metal singer Eizo Sakamoto, but Jun Sanoe had someone else in mind for the gig. In 1992, the band Hardline released their debut album Double Eclipse, great album by the way, and the lead singer's vocals captivated him. Years later, he was able to get in contact with that lead singer through guitarist Doug Aldrich. That singer's name was Johnny Joelli, and as far as hard rock vocals go, his are some of the finest I've ever heard. His tone and cadence when shouting lyrics remain intact, and I swear they can evoke chanting and singing from anyone that hears them, no matter how ridiculous of a song he might be performing. I'd also classify Double Eclipse as a glam metal album, due to Johnny's vocal flair and the overall instrumentation. The album came out at the tail end of glam metal's reign, just as grunge took over as the dominant rock genre. To me, it represents everything the genre stood for. But due to the decline in its popularity, Hardline wouldn't make another album until 2002. When Jun Sanoe contacted him, he had just joined up with Axel Rudy Pell to create Oceans of Time, and despite that album eventually being highly regarded, Neither his work in Hardline nor with Axel Rudy Pell would garner significant worldwide recognition. His work on a video game about a fast blue rodent, however? That's another story. The lyrics to Open Your Heart were written by Jun Sanoe and translated by Takahiro Fukada. Despite the very loose songwriting and inconsistent rhyming scheme, jumping from AAAB to ABBC, to the chorus barely rhyming whatsoever, Johnny's vocals tie everything together in the end. Despite the verses being wordy as hell, he manages to deliver them smoothly. His natural talent for belting out catchy choruses masks the fact that the chorus has no rhyming scheme, and the duality in his vocals ended up working out. Junsunoe's guitars, in addition to the drums and bass, lay a sense of dread and discord over the track, symbolic of what the song is addressing, while also motivating the player to keep moving forward. All of this is why Open Your Heart works so damn well, and it's why music from the band we come to know as Crush 40 would continue to write for Sonic for years to come. It's gonna be In addition to the main theme, each character has their very own theme song. Sonic got It Doesn't Matter, performed by Tony Harnell. 
The lyrics highlight Sonic's carefree lifestyle, and Tony's incredibly wide vocal range give the song a similar vibe to the game's main theme, which is appropriate. However, it somehow has even less of a rhyming scheme than Open Your Heart. This is a problem in Tails' theme as well, and while it is a touching song in the context of Tails' story, this kind of thing just makes it sound like the songs are being made up on the spot. But in all honesty, it'd be kind of stupid to be so hard on this game's poor lyrical translations. Sure, it is technically bad songwriting, and it's easy to make fun of, but it contributed to one of this era's defining factors. Cheese. Cheesiness and Sonic go hand in hand. The dialogue isn't meant to be taken seriously, and the characters have exaggerated cartoonish personalities. Also, it's a kid's game. People connected with these songs when they were kids, as did I. They did their job pretty damn well. Just know that from here, the music and lyrics would improve exponentially. Actually, this is why Knuckles' corny rap song, Unknown from M.E., is an anomaly in comparison. It's rarely mentioned, but Jun Sanoe wasn't alone in creating this soundtrack. Colleagues Kenichi Tokoi and Fumie Kumatani were in charge of most orchestral arrangements. And they assisted with songs not solely tied to hard rock, like Lost World's music, or specifically in Kumatani's case, the theme for Mystic Ruins. Kenichi Tokoi wrote Knuckles' theme, and it kicks into some jazz sensibilities, while also maintaining the guitars that drive this game's sound. All topped off by Marlon Saunders' beautiful soprano voice clashing with Dread Fox's rapping. Amy and Big also have themes, but they never really stuck out to me for any reason. They just kind of meet the status quo. I find Big's theme annoying to be honest, and a part of me feels like they were aiming for that to be the case. Big the Cat is a basket case. Gamma's theme, however, was handled brilliantly. If you've played the game, you'll know of this poor robot's tragic, existential journey. It has nothing to do with the main plot. People take him for granted and he searches for his purpose on his own. Fumie Kumatani wrote this one, and she has a great understanding of storytelling through music. The way the song opens with nothing but what I interpret as a startup sequence, as we fade into a techno beat with a soft, melancholic piano melody over it. The song takes on a whole new meaning once you've played through his story. All of the characters go on their own lighthearted adventures, whereas Gamma plunges into uncertainty over his existence, and dies in an effort to save the life of a little baby bird. That's what's so compelling about this soundtrack. It's over the top, while simultaneously being down to earth. There's a huge divide between these two moods, but it manages to bridge the gap. It's a step beyond what people were used to, but it still feels unquestionably like it belongs in a Sonic game. It's cheesy, it's badass, it's catchy, it's goofy. It's so many things to so many people, and I wouldn't change anything about it. I would remove this song, though. Naturally, Sonic Adventure paved the way for a new era of Sonic music, and they had nowhere to go but up from here. Sonic Adventure eventually became a smash hit, and remains the best-selling game on the Dreamcast hands down. A sequel became an inevitability, and thus, Sonic Team prepared Sonic Adventure 2 for release in time for Sonic's 10th anniversary. Jun Sanoe and his team returned to compose more music, and they went above and beyond here. Jun Sanoe has voiced disappointment with how some songs ended up being more memorable than others in SA1, and he wanted to make them all sound equally distinct in SA2. Here, levels are built around the characters first and foremost, rather than every character visiting modified versions of the same stages. Because of this, the soundtrack is built around the characters too, and it results in the soundtrack having some insane range. Sonic's music is built around upbeat, 
fast-paced hard rock, with unique twists based on the level. Metal Harbor uses trumpets, Green Forest focuses on the drums as you race against time to escape the island. And Pyramid Cave give the keys and a steel drum the spotlight. but by far the most poignant is the theme for City Escape. What has yet to be said about this song? Performed by Ted Poley with backing vocals from Tony Harnell, this song was a fantastic way for the world to be introduced to the music of Sonic Adventure 2. It remains one of the sharpest vocal themes in the entire series, as well as one of the most memorable. A lot of that has to do with the fact that it has a beautiful rhyming scheme. Something unfortunately rare in the original game. From this game onward, however, original lyrics would, in most cases, be written by the vocalists and bands that were hired to create music for the game, resulting in catchier, more structurally impressive tracks. I mean, Ted Poley is essentially writing about what's happening in the level, but his vocals do inspire happiness and get me pumped. Sonic's vocal theme is a revised version of It Doesn't Matter, utilizing Tony Harnell's limitless range in small quantities, making the song hit harder in those instances. Its structure isn't nearly as all over the place as the original, resulting in something much easier to digest. Shadow's songs, on the contrary, are more in line with industrial or electronic rock. Radical Highway, for example, leans on its techno percussion. White Jungle is more of a drum and bass kind of jam, which is perfect for that island escape sequence. Love this one. His theme is Throw It All Away, written by Fumie Kumatani and performed by Everett Bradley. And while the instrumentation is phenomenal for Shadow, the vocal melody is... odd. Eggman utilizes industrial rock as well, although it steps away from the electronic edginess into something that symbolizes his technological advancements. His big brain, if you will. On a lighter note, Tails' songs have keyboards, drums, and guitars tuned to suit his character's personality, and they persist even in levels where things seem dark. Knuckles' music is full of the cheesy rap stuff that I loved in the first game. Knuckles' songs were arranged by Tomoya Otani, and I'd remember his name because he's going to become far more relevant to this series in due time. His tracks take advantage of the shift to hip-hop to create engrossing soundscapes for each level. Meteor Herd is perhaps my favorite example of this. The synths are so perfect for the interstellar, gravity-defying mechanics of the level, and it still feels in line with the tracks that come before. Lyrically, my favorite is a ghost pumpkin soup for Pumpkin Hill. The lyrics are absolutely ridiculous, yes, but I gotta admit, the song works. I sense it in my feet, the great animal's power.
power allows me to feel. On the flip side, newcomer Rouge the Bat has levels accompanied by some upbeat jazz, complete with a groovy sax, smooth percussion, and some sexy drums and vocals. All of this created a tonally varied soundtrack through and through. Even if I don't love every level that the game throws at me, and even if I don't think every track is a banger like Jun Sanoe wanted, I still look forward to whatever's next thanks to this music. And thanks to how recognizable each character's music is, I know exactly what I have to be looking forward to. All of them stay in line with the game's sense of pacing, and all of them heighten my enjoyment of the game, no matter what level I happen to be in. But by far, one of the biggest takeaways from Sonic Adventure 2's soundtrack is its theme song. It's called Live and Learn, and you hear it in full as you take on the game's final boss. Johnny Joelli wrote the lyrics himself, and when you're writing for your own vocal range, you know exactly what you're able to pull off. The song both balances his work in hardline with more modern grunge, and it makes for an immediately unforgettable bout of butt rock. That's right, it's undeniably butt rock, but that doesn't mean it's bad music. Johnny's sense of rhythm is impeccable. His songwriting is just vague enough to remain engaging for non-Sonic fans, resulting in a track that has maintained its impact for two whole decades. It's one of the greatest rock anthems of the 2000s, and I say that with full knowledge of what released during that decade. I welcome the cheese, and I think we could all use a little bit of Crush 40 in our lives, no matter who you are. Live and learn, baby. Jun Sanoe would remain the sound director for Sonic for a few more years. The series went multi-platform after the Dreamcast met its end, and Sonic Heroes would be released in 2003 on GameCube, Xbox, PlayStation 2, and PC. The soundtrack retains the hard rock that made the adventure games what they are, but its music enriches each stage by taking a page out of Adventure 2 specifically. Rather than altering genres by character, the soundtrack shifts styles by stage. One of this game's defining characteristics is its art direction and level theming. It harkens back to the Genesis days of creativity. Lots of red, blue, and green running through an energy plant, a colorful casino in which you take on a set of giant pinball tables and bingo boards, rail grinding through the sky in a canyon, a checkerboard forest floating in the air, a spooky castle filled with tricks and twists, and finally confronting the sheer size and scope of Eggman's fleet. It switches up constantly, and it prevents the game from getting stale on a single playthrough. I can't say the same when you're playing through it four times, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Today we're talking about the music. We go from a nice beach romp that brings the trumpets in once you reach the palace, to an electronic rock beat that increases in intensity as you blow through the power plant. some hard techno with the casino levels. To a beautiful atmospheric electric guitar piece that maintains the pace of the level. some spooky hip-hop in the mansion levels.
and then all the way back around to the hard rock that we've grown so familiar with. In Eggfleet's case, I felt it represented both the grandiose scale and tension of the level. And with its ascending melodies throughout the track, it also represents how high above the ground you are as you maneuver from battleship to battleship. It's a fantastic track. Final Fortress goes for some hard electronic rock as the toughest enemies and hazards bombard you relentlessly, all as you avoid falling to your death in every waking moment of the level. The soundtrack, as a result, always keeps the player surprised, as does the ever-changing level design. Speaking of electronic rock, the band Julian K was brought on to perform the vocal theme for Team Dark. Of all the vocal themes in this game, with all the incredibly corny lyrics floating around, it's nice to have a break from all that for something that sounds genuinely unique and suits the trio. Their lyrical melodies are divine, and their instrumentation is like a cross between Metroid Prime and some edgy punk rock. Never thought I'd say that, but I love them, and it's a shame they didn't stick around for Sonic longer. Speaking of lyrics, the main theme is infectiously catchy, if a bit simple and clearly meant to usher in a new crowd of young Sonic fans. In tone, Sonic Heroes is much more lighthearted than the adventure games, so playing it safe makes sense. What matters is that Johnny Joelli can make anything seem catchy with his vocals. Even if I don't know the words, I'll want to hum the song to myself anyway. Sonic Heroes also marks the third time Crush 40's music has been featured in the final boss fight, and it made me realize something. Most video games use oppressive, daunting music for the game's final fights. Even the heavy hitters that I've talked about on this channel do this. Zelda, Metroid, Half-Life, and even Portal. All kinds of games do this. However, Sonic Adventure changed that. From that game, to Adventure 2, to Heroes, and beyond. They all feature music that aims to empower the player. No matter how scary things might seem, the game wants you to give it your all. For kids in a big, scary world, I feel like moments like these can resonate with them. That's a huge reason Crush 40's music has stood the test of time in the context of the games, and noticing this little detail as an adult has made me appreciate it even more. I love the music of Sonic Heroes, but Jun Sinoe's last soundtrack as sound director was hampered by numerous issues. I think most of us can agree that Shadow the Hedgehog was at the very least damaged by its inconsistent tone, and its soundtrack took a hit as a result. Most of its music was constrained by the childish, edgy tone of the game, as well as its apocalyptic setting and visuals, and it all tends to blend together with low guitar riffs and trashy melodies. If you take the time to listen to it outside of the game it's featured in, though, you might find things to enjoy about it. It's hard to notice a lot of the game's instrumentation over the mild E10 plus cursing, the laughable writing, the mindless soldier slaughter, the slippery controls, the terrible pacing, the stop-and-go level design, the embarrassing pathway system completely screwing over the game's narrative, and the endless onslaught of terrible missions. Okay, I had to throw that out there, I really don't like this game. But I actually would recommend taking a listen to the game's soundtrack, as you would an album, to see if you can appreciate it. I did after finishing the game, and I found some brilliant songwriting buried within a cesspool of junk food music. Lethal Highway's finger bass is beautiful, and the lead guitar is fantastic.
Digital Circuit has some catchy quick techno to go with its theme of exploring an information superhighway. Sky Troops has a really inspiring main melody that elevates the atmosphere of exploring an ancient sky fleet. Lava Shelter's drum and bass vibe, as well as its chopped up lead guitar riff, are tight. And Glyphic Canyon sounds like a great jam session between the game's musical contributors, thanks to its rhythmically dynamic drums and tasty guitar riffs. Granted, a lot of its music just sounds like a grungy jam session, and that's part of the reason it falls flat. Shadow the Hedgehog has a ton of levels with visuals that are similar throughout, and when you pair that with the game's... Uh, misguided tone? It results in a soundtrack that only works in specific instances. I don't know, some of these songs really remind me of the kind of music I loved when I was a kid, reworked into something that I greatly appreciate as an adult with more developed music tastes. It's campy and fun, and it almost suits the tone the game was attempting to establish. But the rest of the game never hits that mark. The greatest example I can provide of the tone harming the music is with the absolute dog shit lineup of vocal themes. I Am All Of Me crosses over from butt rock into just terrible moody broody rock music. And it's a sound I really don't think suits Crush 40. All Hail Shadow has some really hammy lyrics that I can't help but laugh at. And in a cruel twist of fate, Power Man 5000 wrote one of the worst songs they've ever made and put it in this game. The instrumentals are in line with what I love about them. If this were an instrumental track somewhere in the game, I would be beholden to them. But the lyrics and vocal melodies are god-awful. Heaven Can't Save Us, Hell is a Joke is an actual line in this song, which is featured in a game about a three-foot hedgehog with a gun. I think that summarizes this whole situation pretty well. I'm at least a fan of Julian Kay's neutral ending theme, Waking Up, and the game's true ending theme, Never Turn Back. I can give credit where credit is due. But overall, this is a mixed bag, and I would rather forget the miserable experience this game ended up being by just listening to whatever music I can enjoy. Actually, remember what I just said. It's about to become a whole lot more relevant. Now contrary to what you might think, Shadow the Hedgehog wasn't the reason Jun Sinoe stepped down. I imagine he was creatively exhausted after contributing to the series for so long, but that's only a small part of the bigger picture, and he would still contribute to the series for years to come. The fact of the matter is, Sonic was gearing up for a huge reboot, complete with a huge change in direction and style. It wanted to be driven by narrative, and it wanted to be bigger and more bombastic in general. Because of this, it needed a new sound director. Sonic Team chose Tomoya Otani to take the reins. You would think Tomoya Otani would take the music in a hip-hop-centric direction based on his past works in Adventure 2 and Heroes, right? That'd be a logical step, and popular music was putting a focus on hip-hop and pop around this time too. Well, he didn't. He went far beyond expectations, and it's the reason he remains the series' sound director to this very day. Tomoya Otani was about to usher in a new era of Sonic with orchestral rock. Anticipation for 2006's Sonic the Hedgehog was high. The trailer shown behind closed doors at E3 2005, as well as several playable demonstrations leading up to its release, gave people a lot of hope for what should have been both a return to form and an exciting new direction. However, pretty much everyone is aware of the serious damage that the game caused. There are several connotations that come with the names Sonic Next Gen or Sonic 06, almost all of them being not so positive. There are several reasons we refer to the game as such, and not just Sonic the Hedgehog. Overall, the general consensus is that Sonic the Hedgehog for the PS3 and Xbox 360 was a pile of warm vomit, 
and one that Sonic Team has since done everything in their power to recover from releasing. But when I play this game, there are things that stand out to me more than the endless bugs, the goofy story, the janky controls, or the questionable design choices. Take a look at this gameplay. It balances player control, a sense of speed, scripted sequences, and challenging level design. Of course, it's interrupted by the game's plethora of issues, but the point I'm trying to make is that there are glimpses into what might have been here. What if the level design was consistent? What if they had time to fix lingering issues? What if Sonic had genuine momentum in his movement? Etc. By far, the biggest takeaway I had from this game was that it had an absolutely stellar soundtrack that went to waste. From the title screen alone, I had an inkling of what this game wanted to achieve. It's an instrumental version of the song His World, arranged by Tomoya Otani, with strings and other instruments performed by members of the Sega sound team. The lyrics and vocals, however, were written and performed by the frontmen of Zebrahead. Now I have no idea what witchcraft was performed to get these two to work on the game. Then again, they actually got Akon to cover the Dreams Come True song that was featured at the end of Sonic 2. If they were able to get him, as well as Michael Jackson at the height of his popularity, they can get anyone with enough patience and money. Anyway, Zebrahead's talent for blending rap with some delectable vocal hooks mesh beautifully with the song's instrumentation, resulting in something awe-inspiring. Tomoya Otani was about to evolve the series' of sound even further, enriching every stage as best he could. No longer constrained by the series' hard rock, he wanted to compose a soundtrack that would captivate anyone and pump them up for whatever fast-paced action remains intact in Sonic 06. The first level, Wave Ocean, features a pair of wonderful songs. Most of the level features a song that pushes the player forward at a brisk pace with beach drums and pairs a soft electric guitar melody with relaxing acoustics before breaking into a nice solo that maintains the atmosphere of the track. As you enter the mock speed section, the electric guitars get harsher and more pronounced, and Tomoya Otani would establish his trademark drum patterns here. It's such an amazing track. The drums in Tomoya Otani's music can incite adrenaline for sure. With various alterations depending on the mood of the level, he uses them creatively and they're welcome. Kingdom Valley features overt violins and orchestral instrumentation, but it maintains its pace through its drums and bass line. And Crisis City's drum and bass, paired with its dire violin, I just, I have no words. It's so good. But the soundtrack isn't always about balancing an orchestra with some rock influences. The technical colonization of White Acropolis is inspired an electronic dance piece that both reflects the setting of the level, and once again drives swift gameplay.
The synthwave jazz piece that plays within the Cavern of Flame core subverted my expectations, and despite it resulting in one of the most infamous Game Grumps clips of all time, I find myself totally engrossed when I revisit this area. Even the guitar solo caught me off guard. This song is just masterfully crafted. Speaking of masterfully crafted tracks, the bass in Radical Train sounds incredible. The strings and brass sections are used sparingly so as to spur anticipation, and the electric guitar is badass. An aquatic base has this distant sadness to it as you infiltrate a dangerous underwater facility filled to the brim with hazards, but it becomes more hopeful as you proceed. Despite the shift in style, Tomoya Otani was not opposed to experimentation, and I find that it gives the soundtrack breadth. This soundtrack has what feels like an endless amount of range, and the best part about it is you can enjoy it to the fullest without having to play the game! Well, I would say that, but I don't think that's entirely true. The game's final boss features his world being played by a huge live orchestra. The song was used throughout the game as a leitmotif, in areas like the results screen and such. It all seemed to be building up to something, and Solaris' second phase lifted the curtain on what that thing was. The orchestra builds into this crescendo of hard rock instrumentals, fueling the desire to take the boss down. It's an indescribable feeling of motivation, adrenaline, and, at least to me, it represents the climax to a much better game that we never got to play. Sonic 06 has since been relentlessly bashed, and for good reason. Poor management decisions at Sega, a lack of proper direction, the departure of Yuji Naka and the pressure that placed on the team, the developers splitting up to make Sonic and the Secret Rings, and the rush to meet a Christmas deadline, all resulted in what we have today. But at the very least, the soundtrack reminds us of what might have been, and it also ensures that Tomoya Otani would remain on board as sound director for the next game, wherein he would create his magnum opus for Sonic Unleashed. While the game did receive mixed reviews for a number of reasons upon release, retrospective looks at the game have been more favorable. I won't go into too much detail here because it's a topic for a video I'd like to make someday, but obviously, the daytime stages were incredible. They were back then, and they still are today. And the game is still visually stunning too. But when discussing presentation, I think what resonates with people most is the game's music. I've thought about this since the game came out, and I'm confident enough in saying it now. This is my favorite soundtrack out of the entire Sonic the Hedgehog series, and one of my favorite video game soundtracks of all time. It features some of the greatest music ever composed for this medium of entertainment, bar none. It got me through some hard times, I've used it while working out, while studying, while riding in the backseat of the car heading to family reunions as a kid, in virtually any circumstance you could imagine. The soundtrack works on so many levels, and I'm going to attempt to explain why it means so much to me.
it's easy to see just how much care went into designing the environments of Sonic Unleashed. Each country is represented beautifully, and the game's global illumination system makes the colors and textures pop. What supplement this beauty are the songs that play within, as Tomoya Otani and his team paid attention to detail so that the instruments would properly speak for each setting. Apotos, or Athens, Greece, is your first stop, and it's a very quiet village by the ocean. Its flute and acoustic guitar are akin to that of a nice, relaxing stroll through what feels like one of the most peaceful places on Earth. Its night variation puts a focus on the second melody and the guitars, and it's played at a slower tempo. Nighty night! I love the Hubworld themes for how perfectly they capture the essence of each country, while sustaining a relaxed tempo. I love Mazuri's usage of African instruments. Specifically, the night theme creates an impeccable soundscape. Subtle vocals and sound effects, a soft string melody, and a soothing flute all pull me in. Similarly, Holoska's day and night themes employ the same comfortable instrumentation, with bells, chimes, xylophones, and flutes to make you feel the cold yet comfy air of the country. Shamar has an energetic, culturally accurate track during the day to reproduce the busiest streets of Egypt, and its night theme reflects that as well. Duality in the game's music is palpable, and despite wanting to keep up a decent pace in Sonic Unleashed, I found myself just jumping around the hub worlds and exploring while taking in the scenery. Where the soundtrack really puts on its big boy pants is in the action stages. You have these alluring hub world compositions on one side of the spectrum, but what about everything else? As a kid, I remember being taken aback when I set foot in the game's first level, Windmill Isle. The sense of speed was exhilarating, and I hadn't played anything like it before. The gameplay left a strong first impression, but it wouldn't have hit nearly as hard without Tomoya Otani's score. Remember how I briefly discussed his drum patterns? Well, since these levels fly by at unprecedented speeds, they are chock full of this kind of stuff. Every single track implements culturally appropriate percussion that carries you through these lightning-fast, boost-heavy platforming sections, all with instrumentation perfect for its setting. For Windmill Isle, the acoustic guitar that relaxes me carries over. But it also features a violin melody. If there's one thing I've learned from playing Sonic Unleashed, it's if you give Tomoya Otani a violin, he will go ham writing for it. And I couldn't be happier. A detail I love about this theme is how the bridge plays the snare samples in reverse to symbolize Sonic blowing through everything and rushing past people and obstacles. Kind of like when you pass another car on the highway. These are details that make this soundtrack what it is. Let's switch on over to a stage like Savannah Citadel. You have the djembe keeping the tempo in check with additional percussion for good measure, the tropical soundscape sneaking its way in there, and a lead guitar paired with a flute to personify the level and remind you of just how much fun it tends to be.
Arid Stands wholly embraces its setting, builds from the instruments, and mixes it into a unique supersonic drum and bass track. The same can be said for Dragon Road's music, utilizing an Urhu and piano over frantic percussion. Although, I just adore the Eastern setting in general. You put temples like this in front of me and I'm like, yep, I'm sold. Cool Edge Day is one of my favorite tracks in the game, thanks to its carefree melody, its synths, and its guitars and percussion. It is the perfect example of a balance between the game's melodic understanding and instrumental diversity. I mean, you get it. Every single song is a banger. And thanks to the world trekking involved, the music never gets old. Each track is enriched in detail. Although, nothing can top Rooftop Run. It's iconic. Spagonia is a fusion of multiple European countries. Italy, the United Kingdom, France, Spain. Rather than attempting to fit a specific category, Rooftop Run Day is a song that I think anyone can identify with. That violin melody feels so inviting. The drums are upbeat and welcoming, and the dueling guitars in the bridge carry that feeling too. Rooftop Run, in my eyes, represents the game's peak, and emphasizes what I believe is the soundtrack's thesis. What might that be, you may ask? Well, I'll tell you in a second. For now, let's discuss the other half of this game's soundtrack, the Werehog levels. Unfortunately, these themes are constantly interrupted by repetitive battle music. I always wonder why they didn't just use stems in these tracks, building percussion from situations in-game or ramping strings up during a mini-boss. It's a shame, but when you do end up finding room to take these songs in, I guarantee you'll find a lot to like. These levels are full of experimentation in their music, and in contrast to the carefree nature of the daytime stage music, these are more determined and focused. Backing instrumentals focus on utilizing low octaves and whatnot. We start with some night crawling set to acoustic guitars and groovy keys in Windmill Isle, with a similar vibe in Savannah Citadel featuring African percussion, but then we get an accordion and a funky bass line in Rooftop Run, or a catchy Urhu melody in Dragon Road. And Cool Edge goes off, dude. That low synth at the beginning, followed by some dark house music. In contrast to the instruments in Cool Edge Day, reflecting the white snow and bright blue ice, this sounds more like a cold, blistering scamper through a frozen cavern. Of all the stages though, my favorite theme is the one for Jungle Joyride, no contest. The cello sets the stage, but the violin and piano carry its lonely, melancholic feeling. This song, since the moment I first heard it, has stuck with me to this day. It captures the atmosphere of the Werehog perfectly. You're controlling this hideous monster, that doesn't feel or act like Sonic in his stages, and you're forced to hack and slash through an onslaught of enemies, rather than having the freedom you're used to. There you go, that's what I think this soundtrack is about. Chasing freedom. Sonic has been forced to restore the entire planet, and rid himself of the Werehog that's keeping him chained down. The daytime stages give you glimpses into what you're working towards, and those stages fly by in a flash. I'd like to replay them over and over again, but the game moves forward. In life, 
Time moves forward. We need to work towards happiness. Chase those feelings of euphoria and make that your reality. That's why the tradition of having uplifting music for final boss fights has persisted throughout Sonic, and the impact is accentuated in Sonic Unleashed. The final boss theme is daunting and fearsome, while also being motivating and badass. It's an extraordinary orchestral rock rendition of the game's vocal theme, Endless Possibility. For this song, Jarrett Reddick of Bowling for Soup was brought on to write and perform the lyrics. They're simple and have a hint of cheesiness, of course, it's Bowling for Soup after all. But most importantly, they reflect Sonic's desire to maintain his sense of escapism against all odds. And I think that speaks volumes in the face of what I've talked about. The instrumentation is in line with the music of Sonic Unleashed, the hook will get stuck in your head, the bridge is powerful, and overall, it's an absolute gem. Tomoya Otani's style makes the hard rock of previous games seem juvenile, even if it works in the context of those games. That's how mature and intelligent this soundtrack is. Everything about it is finely crafted to suit the various countries. Its instrumentation is comprehensive and delicately constructed, and most importantly, it has a purpose. Regardless of whether or not the game conveys that purpose, I believe the soundtrack does. It hits hard, and I'll continue to revisit it for years to come. It's emotionally freeing. If Sonic 06 didn't convince the world of Tomoya Otani's talent, Sonic Unleashed definitely did. He remains the sound director for the main series, composing music for each new, big installment. Sonic Colors features more of the music that defined both 06 and Unleashed, but with some techno thrown in. This makes sense, considering the setting of an interstellar amusement park. With tracks like the ones for Starlight Carnival and Aquarium Park, the synths are a part of the spectacle, and it feels amazing to blitz through these levels. However, levels like Asteroid Coaster and Planet Wisp subdue the electronic instruments. In Planet Wisp's case, it demonstrates the pure beauty of nature that Eggman is exploiting. Sonic Colors uses multiple themes for its various acts depending on the pacing of the level in question. Sonic Colors is a much shorter, brisker adventure in contrast to the robustness of the previous two installments, so it makes sense to do something like this. Plus, it's a nice throwback to what Sonic 3 did for the series. For example, Sweet Mountain Act 1 is the original track. It's peppy, groovy, and over the top. Act 2 chops up the main melody and creates something entirely new, fast, and funky as hell. Act 3 switches back to a 3D perspective and eases you back into a primary melody, only with hotter drums. Subtle or overt, these changes make a difference throughout the game and keep it fresh. 
A lot of the melodies featured in Sonic Colors seem to symbolize the game's position in the franchise. Sonic Team had struck gold with the daytime levels in Unleashed, and they knew if they were to carefully design stages and balance speed with platforming, they'd have a great game on their hands. Sonic Colors still had problems of its own, but it was by far the most consistent 3D Sonic game released in years at that point. Most fans loved it, and critically speaking, it struck a chord with a lot of journalists, who are not usually impressed by these games. So the cocky attitude this sound gives off ended up working out. I'll never forget the first time I played this game. After years of having on and off relationships with various Sonic games, I was baffled to see that the game just threw you in. No opening cutscenes or unnecessary tutorials. For that reason, Tropical Resort's music immediately resonated with me. That bass line leading into the synth seemed to simply say, Welcome back, Sonic. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Tomoyo Otani was also the lead sound director for the Wii U exclusive Sonic Lost World, tapping into a high-energy blend of orchestral rock, jazz, funk, and pop. Everything the series had adopted and transformed over the years, utilizing techniques and strategies from previous games and creating a nice blend of everything. It has good music! Continuing this unbroken trend of great music in Sonic games no matter the reception or reputation it ends up garnering. The standout track has to be Sea Bottom Segway, appearing in Tropical Coast and Lava Mountain. I gotta be honest, I wasn't expecting this song to reappear for a lava level, but I loved hearing it again. There's something so fitting about having a song this beautiful appear amidst one of the most claustrophobic zones in the entire game. Even the weird fever dream that was Sonic Forces had great music. I felt like it was a step beyond what Lost World accomplished, as it was able to balance modern Sonic's orchestral rock with entirely new ventures. It took me a while to warm up to the music in the Avatar stages, but I would love to hear more of this drum and bass and hard EDM stuff in the future. Seriously, listen to the percussion in Prison Hall, the grave and urgent piano melody. The lyrics are stupid in all of these vocal tracks, but like, who isn't used to it at this point? We've gone over this. Sonic benefits from this kind of stuff. Of course, there are aspects that don't work. It also features synths that emulate Genesis compositions, but listen. If you're going to compose music like this, just use the Genesis sound chip. It's been done before. Trying to mimic that console will just result in a song that sounds vastly inferior, and oftentimes just straight up gross. It's why Sonic Mania avoided doing so as best it could. These compositions were created for classic Sonic levels, in a game that this poor guy just doesn't belong in. Sega wanted to market this game to fans from all walks of life, neglecting potential issues that may arise, when in fact, he should have stayed in Sonic Generations. Ah yes, now this is a game worth talking about. I think a lot of people went back to this game after being disappointed by forces, and why wouldn't they? It comfortably celebrates the entirety of Sonic's history, with gameplay and level design that I found myself endlessly revisiting, and a soundtrack that balances the duality between the classic and modern auras. There are nine main levels in this game, with each of them featuring one classic level and one modern level. Composers from across the entire series contributed to this one. Jun Sanoe, Tomoya Otani, Naofumi Hataya, Kenichi Tokoi, Richard Jacques, known for Sonic R, Cash Cash, known for his work on Sonic Colors, Johnny Joelli, Ted Poli, Tony Harnell, and more. For classic levels, things start out comfortable. 
Percussion steps away from the Genesis samples we've heard so many times before, and instead uses a lo-fi synth for the main melodies while sampling the original music where necessary. For example, Chemical Plant Zone wouldn't be the same without its original sound, but Sky Sanctuary benefits from its main melody not being represented by a harsh Genesis synth, and it added atmospheric flair. Once we hop into Speed Highway, things change. Along with some smooth Genesis samples, the lead guitar has been repurposed to create a nice house remix. Cityscape follows the same path, while also calling back to the multiplayer stage Endless Mine in its second verse. This game really does honor the entire series. Crisis City is a sneaky track. Its guitar is bit crushed in an attempt to make it flow with the rest of the song's dance vibe. I always love techniques like that in the classic stages. Modern interpretations of songs had to incite jovial overtones, nostalgia, and faithfulness to the originals and I feel they did this well. Chemical Plant, for example, takes a huge genre shift, while retaining every melodic element of the original to go with the speed of a modern sonic level. Crisis City goes at a faster tempo as if to say, yeah, this game is faster than 06, you're welcome. And Cityscape throws in a fatter bassline, harsher guitars, crazier drums, a brand new bridge for the song, and Ted Poley and Tony Harnell go absolutely ham, delivering a touching remake of a rock song every video game fan seems to know and love. Some changes are subtle. Speed Highway threw in some cowbell and groovy percussion, while Seaside Hills lead guitar was retooled to sound refreshing. Often the simplest changes end up being my favorites. Revisiting Rooftop Run was incredibly cathartic, as it opens with a piano melody that says, yeah, we know you love this level. Have fun revisiting it. Generations was a seamless blend of musical stylings, while also injecting some of its own liveliness and unique instrumentation into things. It's a marvelous revisitation of the series' music. You get to watch it evolve before your eyes, with surprising twists and turns along the way. It's just unfortunate that a lot of its brilliance is lost to the sands of time, as the series' sound direction keeps moving forward and evolving. Honestly, it's hard to tell where the series will take its music next. It grew from its electropop origins, adopted funk influences and deviated into New Jack Swing, took advantage of the jump in hardware and major shift in direction with some hard rock, 
and then it sped into something much grander and with a lasting impact. Based on what was featured in Forces and the more recent stuff in Team Sonic Racing, I think we have a bit of everything to look forward to. If Sega's recent strategies have demonstrated anything, it's that they are willing to cater to all kinds of Sonic fans. People that have a deep connection with the Genesis sound, or the cheesy rock of the adventure days, or the grandiose orchestra of the modern era. But hey, it's Sega, and Sonic is one of the most inconsistent franchises I've ever played, as I said at the beginning of this video. They could do anything next. And you know what? I haven't even mentioned all the side games much. Sonic Gems Collection had remixes that were ahead of its time. Sonic Riders had some great stuff, I made videos on those games. Sonic R had some hilarious romance ballads that were inappropriate for a racing game, but I still love them. The storybook games had some absolute bangers. Black Knight in particular was in line with what Tomoya Otani was putting out, while also having a distinct Jun Sonoe vibe. Hideki Naganuma even worked on this series, giving it a funky fresh touch with Sonic Rush. There's a whole wealth of content that I haven't really talked about here, so who's to say Sega won't surprise us in the future? The point I'm trying to make is Sonic the Hedgehog has left a deep cultural and musical impact. Undeniably so. Its sound has changed quite a bit, but all for good reason. I hope this video helped shed some light on why. Recently, the Sonic series has garnered a significant amount of ironic or negative attention, and that goes for its music as well. People making fun of the butt rock that hasn't aged well, or assuming that there's no merit to the series whatsoever based on its slew of mediocre games. This started with the Game Grumps playthrough of Sonic 06, followed by many, many more that they would do, and it was heightened by the series' second critical slump. And hey, as much as I love Game Grumps, I started to feel insecure about cherishing the memories I made with Sonic. But that really doesn't matter to me anymore. I wouldn't change a thing about how I view this series. If you are or were in the same position I was in, I just want to say something. Speak up. Talk about how much you love Sonic, no matter which game in the series it is. You like Shadow the Hedgehog? Go ahead, enjoy yourself! I love Sonic R, and I'm going to keep replaying it. Butt rock garnering negative connotations? Play it loud. I used to listen to Bowling for Soup and Zebrahead all the time on the radio. I slipped them in between bouts of Crush 40 and Tony Harnell on my iPod. Even if you grew up actively participating in the Sonic fandom and doing things that some people, from a modern perspective, might view as cringy, cherish those memories. I use memories to fuel my next ventures in life, and, well, that's why you're watching this video right now! I wanted to talk about what the music of Sonic meant to me, and discuss its history, progression, and legacy. And I think its legacy speaks for itself. Through the hundreds of covers across YouTube, Newgrounds, and SoundCloud, the art that spawned from the emotional attachment people have to it, the hiring of composers that were once just fans, and the memories people share in countless YouTube comments on favorite songs. The sound of Sonic is no joke. It means a lot to the world. Cringe is subjective, folks. Do what you love to do. Thanks for watching. I hope this video helped you understand the music of Sonic the Hedgehog.